Uh, what I wanted to talk on this morning is really what stuck in my mind from the beginning of the sabbatical and kind of all the way through it. I was in a book from a New York Times bestselling author, secular book, but just um, it's a book called The World Beyond Your Head. And it's really about an ethics of attention or focus in an age of distraction. So basically a sociologist, psychologist really framing a lot of of moral philosophy into this kind of vacuum of what modern culture is and how crazy it is. And, and so this kind of became a catalyst for me re-looking at some verses um, that I maybe hadn't seen in the light that I see them now. And, and the first one is just in Mark. And so if you'll turn with me to the book of Mark, it's going to be on the screen. But Mark chapter 12, and I'm just going to pick it up in verse 28 and read through it. But it's a very familiar verse. It's the great commandment. And it says this, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? So in the Jewish culture of the day, when the commandments were really the be-all, end-all, that you keep the commandments, that you're faithful to the law, um, a bar mitzvah means you become accountable to or a son of the law. I mean, the law for a Jewish boy up into manhood was, was really what marked you as being a good or righteous person or not. And so to really say which is the most important one uh, of all of the law, which of these laws really rises above all the others, is kind of um, a trick question. This person probably thought that they could come back and disagree or have separate opinions on, on how Jesus could have answered better. But he's kind of trying to focus Jesus so that Jesus commits himself to something that then gives them an opportunity to kind of come back at him. And Jesus says this, the most important one um, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And this comes out of Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema. It's, it's kind of the, the Hebrew educational things. This is what would have been taught to children as they grew up, that this is the supreme thing that you should be doing, loving God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second commandment is like this, that you love your neighbor as yourself, and there's no commandment greater than these. The second commandment that Jesus gives here comes from Leviticus 19. It's a totally different passage, totally different context, but I think what Jesus is showing is this current that runs throughout all the law that unites it in kind of heart and mind and purpose, that God's whole thing that he's doing with the law is really trying to point everybody back to his heart, and his heart is that of love. God is love. And when we fully understand that and fully get that, then we're going to love other people as we love ourselves, that this world is going to be radically different than self-love or selfishness, that we're, we're, we're going to unite kind of around love. And so Jesus grabs these two and says, if you want to understand it, I'm not just giving you the right answer from the Hebrew kind of educational thing. I'm giving you the right answer because of the subtext of what's going on, that it's love. And so we're familiar with these verses, but I think we, we tend to grab at the emotional part. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, that kind of part. That that we really should feel love for God, what Jonathan Edwards called the religious affections, 
that, that our heart, when we have a relationship with Jesus, is changed in such a way that our desires, our yearnings, our passions are no longer for the things of this world. Those things become trite or empty. They don't really satisfy. Rather, our heart finds itself yearning for heavenly things or relationship with God or the peace that comes in a reconciled relationship or a peace that comes in knowing that we're the right kind of person or disciple, that we're doing the right kinds of things, that I can live with myself, that I can look at myself in the mirror, that our, our friends see us the way we would want to be seen, that in becoming this kind of person, that's what I desire more than anything else. And so these affections kind of, I think, are what, what grab our mind. We don't really think of what it means to love God with with not just our heart, but also our mind. Now, I uh, had a philosophy degree in grad school. I did two grad degrees, and one of them was a philosophy degree. And in that degree, loving God with your mind was like the proof text of why um, the philosophy students were better than the theology students, right? Like, this was kind of like our verse or our kind of thing, and, and mind was our space, Right? And that's how I read this verse kind of for a long time. The, the people that are studious, the people that are academic, the people that are going to read, the people that are going to learn, the people that really pursue wisdom, so to speak, at a different kind of level. These are the people that they're really loving God with their mind. And, and, uh, and I don't know that that's quite right. Um, the interesting thing about philosophy, a story I've, I've probably shared a long time ago, is when we started Antioch, there was actually people, a movement in this town of, a, of a, a group of people that were warning Christians about not joining that new church plant, Antioch, because the lead pastor had a philosophy degree. Okay? And the reason was because it says in Colossians chapter 2, um, says in Colossians chapter 2, <laughs> if I hadn't been off for two months, I would totally have got it right. Um, chapter 2, verse 8. So a little, little side story. I, every sermon I've ever preached has been out of the same Bible. And uh, I had started talking to Tamara about, you know what, it'd be fun for me to leave this Bible to our kids. It'd be this cool keepsake. It'd be really sentimental. And then I, I got on a plane in Israel, flew an all-nighter to Memphis, and had, to, had a one-hour get-off-the-plane-to-go-speak moment, and took my Bible, went and spoke, and then met some folks in the restaurant of the, of the hotel. And to the best of my knowledge, my Bible's still there, or with somebody that needed it. <laughs> um, and so I don't know where anything is in the Bible anymore. I mean, I honestly... <laughs> If you're like me, it's like I know where to look. Uh, and it just shows you once again that God did not make me to be sentimental. Every time I try, it just doesn't work. All right, so Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive. Captive. This is, this is like a warning, right? See to it that no one takes you captive uh, through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Uh, philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So there was a group of people, and it was really frustrating to me, going around telling new believers and things like this, you got to watch out for that Ken guy. He has a philosophy degree. Now, I want to give you two reasons why that's um, dumb. First reason um, has to do with grammar, okay? 
There's a difference between adjectives and nouns. Adjectives and nouns. Uh, adjectives modify the noun and, and give it a certain shape. And so when Paul is talking, he says, not beware of philosophy. He says, beware of hollow and deceptive. In other words, bad philosophy. Um, so beware of bad philosophy that's going to lead you astray, not lead you towards truth. So that'd be the first argument. C.S. Lewis once said, there's no better argument for um, good philosophy than the fact that bad philosophy exists and needs to be answered. So what C.S. Lewis said. The second argument um, I had against that was simply this. Uh, in what was being said by these people was basically a premise, premise one, uh, philosophy is bad. Premise two, Ken is into philosophy. Therefore, that's how you draw therefore when you're doing logical arguments. The conclusion that follows from the premises is Ken is bad. Philosophy is bad. Ken is into philosophy. Therefore, Ken is bad. <clears throat> um, premise one is where I think the problem is. But the bigger issue is that this person uh, or group of people that are going around talking to people were making a logical argument. And logic is categorized in what discipline? It's, it's what, yeah, it's philosophy. This form of argument was actually what Aristotle built as a form of, you know, writing out your arguments. If you walk to the car and you slip on ice, you grab the handle of your car and your hand slips off and you get in your car and you drive just as fast as you always would, we'd say you're being really what? Dumb, right? Because deductively, deductive logic should tell you if it's slippery for me, it's slippery for the car and I should drive slower. And so I think this person that was making this argument probably uses logic in a lot of ways and so to argue against philosophy is self-refutational. To do it using a, argument, uh, a logical uh, formula of an argument to say that we shouldn't be doing philosophy is a, a self-refuting kind of circle. Does that make sense? Okay. So all that to say um, philosophy is not bad and it's okay to love the Lord your God with all your mind even if you read nothing but Italian Renaissance books on sabbatical. Um, but it goes deeper than that, I think. I think I've had a little bit of an anemic or maybe being with all the guys and, and thinking the philosophy stuff was cool maybe shaded my view of this verse. And so I want to read a little bit of, of what was speaking to me out of this text and, and then hopefully show you both here and then in Philippians kind of how I'm reading some things differently. So this is... From the book, The World Beyond Your Head, I would encourage you to get it. I think it's one of those helpful books that helps you walk through contemporary life. But this is kind of from the, the beginning of the argument that he's setting up. Uh, and I'm going to read you some sections. He says, Our susceptibility to being buffeted by various claims on our attention is surely tied to the intensification of nervous stimulation that the, that the German sociologist George Simmel identified with a metropolitan environment over 100 years ago. Think of the corporate manager who gets 200 emails per day and spends his time responding pell-mell to an incoherent press of demands 
The way we experience this often is as a crisis of self-ownership. Our attention isn't simply ours to direct where we will, and we complain bitterly about it. Yet the same person may find himself checking his email frequently once he gets home or while on vacation. It becomes effortful for him to be fully present while giving his children a bath or taking a meal with his spouse. Our changing technological environment generates a need for ever more stimulation. I want to make one other connection here. I think I've shared before about what's called the variable rewards system. Okay? The variable rewards system, um, if you're using uh, lab rats and you create a system where if they hit the lever, they get a pellet, okay? And they always get a reward. Hit the lever, get a pellet. Hit the lever, get a pellet. They get a constant reward. They will do it only so long until they tire of it, and then they'll go and do something else, okay? If you never give the rat a reward, they'll do it maybe once, maybe twice, even if they've learned to hit the lever, but sooner or later, they'll stop and never bother with it again, okay? So it's a zero reward kind of system. A variable reward system is where the rat is hitting the lever, and every now and then, a reward comes out, but the rat never knows when. Does that make sense? And what they find is the rat will never stop hitting the lever because you never know this might be the time. So a variable reward system is exactly why when you walk into a, a casino, you see people sitting there for hours on end pulling the lever. Does that make sense? It might work some. It's why I played the Powerball last week. You can't win if you don't play. Um, it might, it might be this time. It might be this time. It's also why in parenting, the first time you crack when your kid begs and pleads and you think it's loving, you've just trained your child what? To beg and plead every single time. Our kids get nothing out of me if they beg and plead. It doesn't mean I never give in. But if I give in, it's usually a half hour later or 45 minutes later when there's been a break in what's going on and it's not because they begged and they pleaded and they understand that. It's my choice. And they know that if they beg and plead, the chances of me giving in are going to go down because the minute I give in, I'm just reinforcing a variable rewards system. So now here's... I didn't bring it out. Um, I have this thing. It's called an iPhone. Um, so just imagine it. Uh, here's what I do. Um, I have it with me. It goes to my lunches. It goes, I mean, it goes with me everywhere. And when I'm bored, I, I, I click it on and I refresh my email, you know, and let it go. And while I'm waiting for emails to come in or not come in, I don't know if any are going to come in, I go to Facebook and then I hit refresh to see if any notifications pop up. And then I go see, you know, who on Instagram found whatever my latest thing was. And then I go back to see if any emails came in while I was waiting, you know, and I kind of pull it again so that it refreshes again. It's just habit, right? And what am I doing? It's a variable. Our iPhones are a, like a perfectly designed variable rewards um, conduit. I have gotten good emails before. I have gotten fun stuff on Facebook or Instagram before, and I might again. It might be this time. It might be 10 seconds later. It might be 
And, and, I, and I am constantly there. And even when someone comes back from the restroom and I put the phone away, what I've done is I've just blown myself out in terms of my attention, that, that I'm open to the world. There's no focus that's going on. And it's kind of what is being talked about here. So the content of the stimulation almost becomes irrelevant. Our distraction seems to indicate that we are agnostic on the question of what is worth paying attention to. That is what to value. And in this book, what he's really trying to do is say we need a a language or an ethics of attention. That we don't, as a culture, have a, a language set for talking about the value of my mental space. So if you pollute the water around my house or if you pollute the water I drink, we have language for that. It's absolutely not okay. It's, in fact, it's criminal. You can't do that because we share that resource and you don't have a right to, to do something to it which is going to affect me. But when I go into an airport or I get on a bus and I'm bombarded with things that are trying to grab my attention, the ads, the noise, the distraction, um, I, I just go with that because that's what we've learned is normal. We don't have a culture for saying that, that somehow the shared mental space, our focus, our attention is something valuable and that, that certain things shouldn't have a right to spam me all the time. And so that's really what he's arguing for is this language. So if we go on, he uses the phrase, I love the colonization of life by hassle. Um, and then, of course, this caught my ear. Um, that in the intentional commons, that means the common space um, that we share as society with our attention span, that in the intentional commons, circumspection, literally looking around, would be one element of justice. That it's actually harmful, all the distraction. It makes us uh, worse as pedestrians, as bikers, as drivers. makes us worse with the things we're supposed to be paying attention to heavy equipment, work, and that it actually becomes detrimental to society when we're not allowing people to to pay attention or to focus, literally be attending to what is the greatest priority in front of them at that moment or should be the greatest priority. Um, To attend to anything in a sustained way requires actively excluding all the other things that grab at our attention. It requires, if not ruthlessness, toward oneself, certainly a capacity for self-regulation. Then he shares this story, and that'll be the last piece I read to you. Uh, The ability to control oneself in the face of some temptation is greatly enhanced by, indeed seems uh, simply to be, the ability to direct one's attention towards something else. In other words, the way to combat distraction is to have something else that you choose to attend to. Two psychologists, Walter Mischel and E.B. Ebison, gave children the option of having one marshmallow immediately or if they were able to wait 15 minutes, two marshmallows. Now, left alone with the marshmallow at hand, some broke down and gobbled it up immediately. Others, after brief struggle. So, by the way, I have four kids. I know exactly which kids would be one marshmallow kids or two marshmallow kids. But about a third of the children succeeded in deferring gratification and getting the bigger payoff. Those who did so were those who distracted themselves from the marshmallow by playing games under the table, singing songs, 
or imagining the marshmallow as a cloud, for example. Now, the interesting thing was that in a follow-up study of the same children a dozen years later, their initial performance on the self-regulation task was more predictive of life success than any other measure, including IQ and socioeconomic status. The researcher's interpretation of the results is that it isn't willpower, as we conventionally understand, that distinguishes the successful children. It is the ability to strategically allocate their attention so that their actions aren't determined by the wrong thoughts. By the wrong thoughts. So here's the interesting thing. Turn to Philippians with me. I've only preached on this verse once, and it was because we were doing a series on the book of Philippians. But Philippians 4, chapter 8, it's kind of the culmination of, really, the the bottom line of Paul's preaching in this book that has a lot to do with joy and freedom. And so Philippians chapter 4, it's on the screen, verse 8. This is what Paul says. Now finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, I've never preached on this verse because I grew up in the 80s. And growing up in the 80s, by the way, we just finished watching the Indiana Jones series with the kids. And the 80s look a lot different to me now than they did when I was growing up in them. Special effects uh, are a lot different. Um... But I grew up in the 80s, and, and the 80s was a very big moralistic decade in evangelicalism, or certainly kind of in the broader conservative culture. Um, it was the age of the moral majority. Uh, it was really, it was, it was a very moralistic period. And so I grew up with this idea of religion or faith that it was always trying to force me to do something that didn't sound very fun, didn't sound like it had much of a reward to it, um, but that I had to do it because I ought to do it. And that, that doing it, because I have to do it, because I ought to do it, was something that was really going to be uh, at the end of white-knuckling and forcing myself very stoically to do the right thing. So whatever is pure, admirable, admirable praiseworthy, whatever's right and true and all these things, like think, uh, think about such things like, wow, it sounds like a lot of work. And it makes me feel just heavy, like I'm being pushed down on and forced to have to do something that just doesn't grab me. That, that's moralism. It's legalism, right? And so I kind of just have always had this verse out there is like, oh, that's one of those quaint, nice verses that I'd rather not talk about. Because I, I don't just, I don't get excited about it. It doesn't make sense to me. Reading this book made me come back to it and go, I think what Paul's really saying to us here is the life we want, the peace of God will be with us when we actively choose to put our mind or attend to or focus on the things that are going to draw out the best in us, that are going to fill our minds with the greatest or happiest thoughts, that we have a choice at all times to go, I might have cancer. And that can, that can keep me up all night, every night. That person might be gossiping about me. I might lose this job. I might 
uh, struggle paying the rent six months from now based on kind of current projections. Oil is down. My retirement's in oil. I might not have the kind of retirement I thought I was going to have. Who knows? But right now it doesn't look good. Like we attend or worry to all of the might bad things in life. That's, that's natural kind of human tendency. It's what Jesus said when he was like, why are you worrying about tomorrow? Each day has a, enough. You don't need to start projecting forward. And what I think Paul is saying is instead of all of these worry things, stressful things that, that can't bring about anything good, choose rather to set your mind actively on, on these other things. What things? So the list, again, here is whatever is true, aletheia, whatever is right, whatever is noble, this word whatever is right is actually the word for justice. It's, it's this righteousness or, or justice, what, what really should be in society. Think about those things. What should be for your neighbor or for your kids or for the person at work? What is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is uh, excellent, the word excellent here, um, is the Greek word for moral excellence. It's um, arete. It's all of the Greek kind of ideals strove for this, what they called moral excellence, arete, that was kind of the hero or the person that you'd uh, look up to because they just were formed in the right way that they would do the right things in the right situations such that we could look up to them and learn from them. The, the people that were worth kind of looking up to the excellent people, the heroes, if you will. Whatever is praiseworthy, in other words, reflects back to God his glory, which worthy of praise. God, there are the, the blessings that I can count. Yes, I might have cancer, but I have health today. Um, Micah, you guys know Micah. Uh, we got to see him when we were down in California, and he's coming out with a blues album. Okay, He's been writing blues, and he um, has this, uh, song that he wrote when he was in the hospital. He suffers from a really debilitating internal um, disease. A lot of his poetry is about it. A lot of the poetry you might have heard is about it. But he wrote this song that's a blues song, a blues anthem um, that's all about yet I'll celebrate, you know, life. And it's like got this clapping. And it's a celebration song that he wrote from the hospital, feeling as bad as he did. And he has a woman in it saying, I'm going to die from cancer tomorrow, but I'm alive today. I will celebrate. I will celebrate, you know. And it's got this old kind of stomping and clapping. And Micah, in his pain, was grabbing hold of something that I can pay attention to that or I can pay attention to this. Now, that's an extreme rendering of it. But think of all of the blessings that we can count. This is the great book, um, chapter 4 here. Rejoice in the Lord always, verse 4. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Um, we're not just supposed to pray for the needs. God, I need this money and I need this health. One of the things I think we need to learn to pray about is, God, I need you to guard my heart and my mind. God, I'm being tempted to have my mind and my attention pulled in ways that are, are not constructive and are not praiseworthy. 
And I need you to give me the strength and the fortitude. I need you to fill me with that so that I can attend to or focus on the things that are going to allow me to render unto you the glory that I, I should be giving you and to see the blessings that are in my life or certainly to have the trust or the faith, even if everything is bleak, that you are over or sovereign over all of this and that in you I have my faith or my trust. I believe that you can move still in my life. And so there's this interesting thing, like what about our prayer life that actually is asking God to work on us and come about this way? I think this verse, this, this passage about think about such things um, looks a lot different to me now. Uh, in this book, Matthew Crawford points out something really interesting about American culture, something I think we all know and are acquainted with, and that's that we take autonomy or freedom as the ultimate good at all times, especially in Bend. Um, we take autonomy and freedom as the ultimate good at all times. I have people that will come to me and say, I'm really into community. I really love fellowship. I'm really into community. And then they'll talk about, but, you know, it's something, something, something. Well, have you thought about joining a small group? Oh, no, I'd never do that. I don't want to commit to something that's ongoing that I'd have to go to every week. I'd feel boxed in. I'd feel trapped. I wouldn't have my freedom. So you're into community, but only when you're in control. So autonomy, freedom, again, ultimate goods kind of in our society. Like we choose that at all times. And what the argument kind of went along in this book that I really loved because it had all of these applications was Crawford says it's to our own detriment. Humans were not meant to be radically autonomous. We're social animals. We're social creatures. We need certain things. Um, and we also get tyrannized by radical freedom. Radical freedom means at each step, I have to ask the question again, what do I do now? Because I've, I've committed to nothing. I'm free at every step, right? So at every step, I have to ask again, what do I do now? What now what do I do? Where do I go from here? And pretty soon it begins to tyrannize us, this weight of always having to figure out the next step. And so he argues that we actually become more ourselves when we give up radical freedom and autonomy and begin to learn how to submit to templates and patterns that are pre-established for us. He brought up cooking. When you cook, you go into the kitchen and you attend to or focus on the ingredients at hand. And at each step, the question, what next, is already predetermined for you. Um, if you have any sense of what's going on. If not, what next is just, hey, Tamara, what next? You know, like, but even that's like onions first or peppers. Like, but but you, you're moving along and that's why so many people that vacuum or do dishes or cook begin to go, I love doing it. It, it centers me. It's peaceful. And the reason is, is because you're, you're into a pattern where you can just be yourself and you don't always have to kind of go, what next, what next? The slow movement was born in the 70s, late 70s and into the 80s by a, a book printed in Germany. It took on a lot of steam when the slow food movement caught on in, in Italy, which was really a backlash to a Burger King opening up in um, Rome. And so the slow food, uh, food movement in reaction to fast food was to say, no, that's not human. That 
going and getting your ingredients and bringing them home and preparing your meal and knowing what you're doing and sitting down and eating it. This is what it means to be human. And so he's talking about once again, like the cooking and doing these things, submitting to that is how we can become more human. Joining a small group, let me just take it one step further, church. Church is one of those things that historically for 2,000 years, people have submitted to. And in submitting to it, you begin to find that you're a part of a community and it brings about things that otherwise wouldn't have happened. Our kids hated going to church um, six, seven years ago. Hated it. And it was awkward um, because the I'm the pastor, you have to like it, didn't work when I told them that. Um, but our kids love coming to church now. They show up, the first thing they do is ask Linda if she needs help and they go serve in the kids area. And then afterwards, um, some of my kids help with teardown uh, in the kids' area. And they go to youth group and love youth group. And by the way, Jarrell and the, the youth workers, um, I've been ruled down on youth ministries most of my adult life. I was a youth pastor. And, and the reason is because all the statistics show it's a big waste of time. That it, it does not accomplish what parents think it does. And so parents for four years feel really good because their kid's going to youth group. And then their kid goes to college and it's as if they never set foot in youth group. And so for the, for the most part, it's, it's, a, it's a big feel-good thing for parents that are worried about high school-age kids. Um, what is happening in Antioch's youth group is remarkable. Kids are being discipled and learning to be in community and love each other. My kids come home and they've learned about God. They've learned about scripture and they can't wait to go back. On, um, on sabbatical, we were gone in SoCal for like three and a half weeks. And my kids, my oldest two that go to the youth group were really upset because they were missing all these youth, youth group things. Like really mad at me. And it threatened to ruin sabbatical. And it cost me a lot of ice cream money to, to, balance, <laughs> to balance out the scales, right? Um, but what is happening in our youth group is amazing. And the kids that are able to join that and submit to a program that they belong to, there's good to that. I talked about it in, in my book, The Grand Paradox. I always have people come to me and say, I'm not going to really come to church anymore because I don't need to go to church to have a good relationship with Jesus. And when someone says that to you, I don't need to go to church to have a good relationship with Jesus, it's a trick question. Because if you say, well, yeah, you do, then you sound really like a jerk and really legalistic. Because you're saying that they're not autonomous, that they're not, um, they don't have freedom. You're trying to, to control them, you know, as if you think something's a cult or whatever. And so you kind of sheepishly go, well, you know, I guess you're right. Like you don't have to go to church to have a good relationship with Jesus. And then you kind of walk away. Well, I did this enough, time, uh, enough times over the last 15, 20 years with people that I began to, to, to eventually come with this response. Now when people say, I don't have to go to church to have a good relationship with Jesus, I say, you're exactly right. The interesting thing is, um, after all the times people have said that to me, I've never yet met one person that a year later had a better relationship with Jesus after they stopped going to church. And so I kind of put it back on them to argue to me how somehow this decision for radical autonomy is actually going to be better than continuing to submit to, to something else. Uh, in marriage, if, if a couple is always fighting about their own time, what about my time? What about my girl's night? What about this? Like, 
you don't have a good marriage by fighting over your, your autonomy within marriage. Mutual submission, serving one another and submitting to one another is where you find a healthy and strong marriage. It says so in Scripture, and I think our own experience bears that out. Submitting to things is one of the ways we find that we become more fully human. And so I'm looking at this verse different, and I'm like, I think the moralists, you can put um, the verse back up there. Actually, I'll draw. You get the draw pad up. Um, here's my mind. Um, I don't know how to make it look better than that. There's, there's all, all these things are coming at me and, and bombarding my mind. Um, all these distractions. And then I have my own internal distractions, my own fears, my own worries. I've got all of this stuff. And what Paul is saying in Philippians here isn't white knuckle it and somehow in the face of all of this, um, avoid being distracted. Avoid letting it own you. Um, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there is something so much greater. All of what is right and good and true, all of what comes from your relationship with God, all of what Christ shows you, all of, of who you really want to be is out there if you but choose to attend to it, to let that be what occupies your mind or what you focus on. If you're willing to submit to worship, I don't know, scripture reading, prayer, community, asking other people how they're doing and being reminded that your problems aren't the only problems. Um, sitting at the table, we, we taught our kids recently, look, prayer at dinner isn't like wide open prayer. Yet. You're trying to go, oh, what should I pray about? And, and Aunt Mildred's thumb and, you know, like, no, prayer at the table is giving thanks. It's, it's Thanksgiving prayer. And so we tried to boil it down and make it easier. So they now pray about um, their relatives and, and the family that they have and the loved ones that they have and the church community. Our kids love Linda and love Kip and love Ben and love Jarrell. And to hear them talking about that at the dinner table is amazing to me. And they give thanks. Like there are these things that Paul is saying that you put in front of yourself. And when you begin to attend to them, it, it allows the peace of God to come through in you. Let me put it to you this way, because maybe it'll sharpen it. We can worry about the bad things that are or could be, or we can worry about the good things. I think maybe that's the most helpful way of seeing it for me is that, that worrying is basically an urgency and an immediacy of our attention. And I, I think I never saw... Paul's words in Philippians, put them up again on the screen. I never saw these as being urgent or immediate things for me to worry about, concern myself with, such that I would have the right kind of interior life that I desire. And so this book and just the time on sabbatical allowed me enough space to come back and say, um, I don't want to be a pastor and I don't want this to be a church where all we do is, is label the bad things and then send you out to kind of fight your way through it, white knuckle, knowing that you're going to lose, but hopefully you won't lose that bad. 
but rather a church that affirms and encourages that, that we can concern ourselves with mutual submission, templates, rituals even, communion, and the fellowship and worship that we share together. And that in concerning ourselves or worrying about these things, we can occupy our minds, love God with our minds in such a way that it allows us to become um, the people that we want to be. Plugged into Christ and the fruit of the Spirit coming through. Um, so that's just what's been occupying me. Next week, we're going to launch into a series where we're really going to talk about what does it mean to be chosen people? That God chooses us. We are his chosen nation, a royal priesthood, what the uh, reformers called the priesthood of all believers, that we literally aren't sitting here as radical, autonomous people that are just the bearers of God's blessings, but that we stand between God and others as mediators of the blessings of God, that somehow we are priests, all of us, um, of the God that we serve. And, and there comes with that this opportunity and privilege to live life in a different kind of way. So next week we start this, this kind of privilege series for four weeks, and I'm really crazy excited about it. Um, the Seahawks, I think, are losing. Um, they are, right? Um, so I'm sorry, uh, but, but hopefully this was a better use of your time than watching, watching the game. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Uh, Ben's going to come out and sing a song uh, for the offering, and then we'll, we'll close here shortly together. Um, but let's pray if we can. Father, I would just ask for simple things that you would renew in us the joy of cooking once again. That you'd renew in us the joy of, of long walks where each step follows after the other and we find ourselves in deeper conversation with our children uh, than we would have otherwise. Or even if it's snowboarding or skiing, the time on the chairlifts as we sit there and ride up a mountain would allow for the right kind of conversation and the right kind of joy that we would glory in nature and the work of your hands and that we would, we would find ourselves in a praiseworthy state. I pray that we would submit to each other, that we would find community, not just dropped on our doorstep because it doesn't happen that way, but that we'd find community as we serve one another, as we prioritize it, as we put it on our to-do lists, as we think about it more than we think about the things that we need to do to take care of ourselves or to satisfy the concerns we have or the fears that we might have for the day. Father, somehow help us learn the rhythms of life the way you intended, that our relationship with Christ would truly change our hearts, that things would emanate from that, that it would fill our mind with different kinds of thoughts, that we'd be able to focus on and attend to the things that would only reinforce the people you want us to be and the people that we're hungry to be. And that in that we would know peace and that we would know fullness of joy. So I pray for this church that you would keep your hand upon it as we leave this morning, as we continue to sing and to pray to you. In Christ's name, amen.